This is Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 144 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, it's my great pleasure to host Rachel Taylor, CEO of Nubix, an edge native application platform that makes it easy to build, deploy, and manage applications, even on the tiniest of edge devices for the industrial IoT. Momenta is actually a proud investor in Nubix. Now, Rachel is a passionate operational executive with more than 20 years of enterprise infrastructure technology experience. She has held numerous leadership roles at leading tech companies where she's helped build great teams to achieve operational excellence, as well as various liquidity events, including Cloudera, Meraki, Peakstream, Riverbed, and VMware. Prior to Nubix, Rachel was Chief Operating Officer at Rokana, focused on securing funding and scaling the organization. Rachel, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here. And it's it's great to have you. I I always end up saying the same thing at the beginning of this. It's like you know we should have done this a long time ago, and it <laughs> certainly applies to you because uh, we've been an investor for a while, and I know have worked with you on several different capacities, and uh, and I know how hard it is to get your time. So I really greatly do appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with us today. So. As always, I always like to start this, you know, to understand your own digital industry leadership journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread? In other words, you know, the one or more thematic threads that define that journey. Yeah, you know, I um, one of my favorite sayings of, of late the last couple of years has become that life only makes sense in reverse. And maybe that's because I'm, you know, now in my 40s and, you know, life is starting to make more sense. Um, but I think for me, um, you know, starting off in tech, uh, especially 20 some years ago as a woman, was really challenging and there were a lot of roadblocks and I, but I, I navigated, I continued to tack, you know, if you use the sail, sailboat analogies, right? I just kept tacking and tacking and finding the wind and the current and eventually I made my way back, but it was, it was, a, it's been a strange journey that now I absolutely am so grateful for kind of the turns that life gave me along my professional career uh, that landed me here. So, um, you know, and that that really has been starting off in technology, right? Wrote my first program in second grade and was just hooked on technology. Um, went to college actually early um, and, you know, at the age of 16 was the first sales rep on campus for Apple for their HEP2 program. Got to go to the Irvine campus of Apple at 16. Had to get a waiver signed, right, in college from my parents. Um, you know, worked in the computer lab all through college and then started my first job after graduating from college at 19 and ended up implementing the first Windows and T network in the state of California for a brokerage firm, um, where I really kind of solidified my love of technology for its practical ability to solve really, really hard, really important problems um, in meaningful ways. And, um, and you know, and then my, my journey kind of took a turn as I moved from San Diego up to the Bay Area. Um, 
I thought I'd get a tech job and be a network admin, but instead I kind of got forced into technical recruiting and helped build. I built five or six knocks for Exodus Communications before they blazed out. And then, like you mentioned, I went to some marquee technology companies really early um, and got to help them build those companies, you know, with a great technology idea, some money from some VCs, and we got to go build the team and execute. So I had this kind of front row seat right over and over again to what that process looks like and seeing kind of the good, the bad and the ugly and uh, firsthand, you know, sat in a lot of boardrooms presented to, you know, Vinod Koshla and Doug Leone and, uh, you know, a whole host of the VC elite in Silicon Valley and um, learned a lot about, you know, how to how to build a great company and how to make a lot of great mistakes along the way that, you know, that um, and how to navigate that as part of Nubix's journey. You know, it's it's interesting. We have a well-known exec search practice. And so one of the first things I keyed in is the, you know, the kind of the people leadership roles you did, both recruiting, you know, key talent and and, and certainly managing them. And it's, it was interesting to hear you say you were kind of forced in that direction because I think, man, what a lucky break early on to, <laughs> to get that because I know how, one, difficult it is to recruit people, but but two, how empathetic it makes you toward understanding people and truly, I think, getting the most out of them. So I, I've been, I'm actually fascinated by this foot in, you know, the technology and the talent uh, acquisition space. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask kind of what attracted you to that intersection. I think you said you were kind of forced into it, but, <laughs> you know, uh, what were some of your key lessons learned out of that during that time? You know, what I learned is a, a couple of things um, is that, uh, first of all, I al always had a really great nose for early technology, right? So, I mean, I, I love to talk about the fact that I went to Riverbed before there was a WAN optimization magic quadrant with Gartner. I went to VMware before there was a virtualization magic quadrant, right? Like, I, you know, Peakstream got acquired into Google to power their browser, right, at 20 people. Um, I was at Meraki when it was 19 people and helped grow it to over 100 and still is the most successful acquisition Cisco's made. So great nose for tech and tech that's meaningful, but also tier one. So what I learned is, first and foremost, go to the leader. Don't go to the tier two company. Go to the people that are absolutely top shelf all the way, right? So that's number one is be the best. Don't don't be a follow on. Don't be a second player. And they call that, you know, kind of, you know, the the um, kings of category, right? So that I learned. The second was that A players are absolutely like you settle for nothing less. Again, that top shelf kind of attitude, right? Like B players hire C players and build C player teams. A players, you get that multiplier effect of 10x, and that is massive. And the other thing about people that I learned is that you want missionaries, not mercenaries. Mercenaries will be gone the second something better comes along, $10,000 more, whatever it is, they'll be gone. You hire the people that are passionate both about what you're trying to solve, but also about what kind of culture and what kind of environment, what kind of leaders you're committed to having in that organization. Um, and then the last thing I learned about people is that consistency is king, right? Just like 
kids, just like dogs, just like relationships of any kind, romantic or professional, you can't, you have to do the things you promise early on, or else you end up with either people that are disgruntled or apathetic and just check out. And in fact, maybe worse are actively kind of negative influences in your organization, um, or you lose them, right? And then you end up in this kind of leaky sieve situation. So people, a great idea with the right people to execute is not going to reach the kind of success that the companies I've been at have reached. Um, and um, and then, you know, I'd say that the last piece is that, um, you know, always do the right thing with people. Um, it'll always work out, right? Even if that means letting somebody go, even if that means, you know, not promoting someone because you don't think it's the right choice. You, you have to be consistent to your values um, because it impacts so many different pieces of your organization's potential and opportunity and bandwidth and overhead and how fast you can move. So um, it really has been kind of the most important thing that I learned on my journey to becoming a CEO is the people side of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Again, I think you were you were lucky or blessed to uh, to have such an opportunity so early to have a foot in in both. And we'll talk in a minute how you're applying that. I noticed, you know, a, a very interesting, uh, I'd say, you know, kind of real step up on your uh, CXO career. So you you left, uh, I guess, Cloudera and went with some of the execs to form Rokana in 2014 and and took on the role of COO at that point. Um, just looking at the you know the fundamentals, it looks like an incredible journey. Uh, you did a funding round 2015 led by Google Ventures. You exited to Splunk in 2017. Typical Silicon Valley uh, you know, kind of <laughs> dream experience in, in such a short time. What uh, what did Rokana do and what did you learn really as part of uh, its leadership team so early? Well, you know, Ken, again, it's funny not to be a broken record, but it's like everything ends up making sense in the end, right? Like I look at the companies I've been at and WAN optimization actually has threads. In fact, somebody just said the other day how, you know, some of the stuff we're doing at Nubix has flavors of Riverbed's WAN optimization piece, right, of what we're doing on these edge devices. And then you have VMware, which is virtualization, which is, you know, kind of the first version, right, early gen one of containers is virtual machines, right? And then you get to Cloudera, which is big data, which obviously is core to being able to collect data, build models, and build ML that then goes wherever it needs to go to be applied. And Rokana was kind of the last piece of that, which was um, what we were doing at Rokana was collecting all of the machine-generated data in an infrastructure and IT infrastructure, right? So everything, your firewall and your routers and your servers and your even your cooling systems, like anything that's inside of that cage or connected to your IT system and that distributed infrastructure, um, we were collecting those signals and then we were applying analytics to understand whether there was a denial of service attack going on and how do you automate that, right? Which is why Splunk bought us because Splunk is all about that kind of infrastructure management and how do I know when things are going wrong across my enterprise infrastructure? And so Rokana was applying machine learning to those machine generated signals, which now I'm at Nubix, right? And it's like, okay, we've got the WAN optimization piece. We've got containers, which is like VMs. We've got big data, which is Cloudera. And the last piece of the puzzle is sensors, which are the equivalent at the edge of a, you know, a, a router or a firewall, 
right? Um, it's generating a signal. It's not human based, right? It's collecting this data on a regular interval. And how do I take that data, correlate it with other signals and try and understand in some kind of automated ML data science way, what is happening and what do I need? What action do I need to take? What a great story in terms of how all of this converges to uh, both your leadership journey at Nubix, but obviously your your technology accomplishments there as uh, as well. So you founded uh, Nubix in 2017 with uh, your CTO, your now CTO, Mike Gray. Um, you already talked a little bit about you know the problem you set out to solve, but tell us about some of your key use cases and wins then. Yeah, so um, it's actually kind of funny because um, that, that's a slight misnomer is that I actually am not the original CEO of Nubix. So I I am the um, I am the cleanup crew. Um, I came in um, <laughs> when Nubix was basically kind of on its last leg and I was put in as CEO by the board after about two or three months. So I came in as COO with the expectation I would succeed the old CEO, but it was kind of a two to three year track. Within two to three months, the board stepped in, put me in as CEO, and it has changed in so many ways it's not even the same company anymore, right? So my original investor, he calls me the Phoenix, right? Because from the ashes, I have built Nubix. And it's, you know, there's not a line of code left from what Nubix was before. But what I saw was the, the right kind of ideas, right? Is how do we bring um, intelligence in an agile, safe way to the, inf the edge of the industrial environment? And, and I, you know, Mike and I, my CTO, uh, my co-founder and I like to talk about, um, you know, our experience in enterprise infrastructure and how the goal really was to take, how did the cloud and how did technology that was built to solve these problems in large distributed enterprise infrastructures, right? When I was a Windows NT network admin, I remember all the pain of, you know, printers that wouldn't communicate and, oh, I can't get to my email and why is this not working and right and what version of software is running on which servers and all of that kind of overhead and now you've got the cloud right and i swipe my credit card and i'm up and running on an aws ec2 instance in a couple of minutes right that is what needs to happen at the edge and that's where mike and i's background right mike's much more services and databases and appliances and all of that on the tech side and so it was this beautiful marriage of you know, services and IT infrastructure and how do you bring those learnings to this edge environment? Because we saw that was the next wave, right? Is that industrial needed help starting to solve these problems. And so we brought those learnings from the cloud, but we we focused on what was true about the edge, right? It's small compute, it's disconnected, it's, you know, hazardous or rugged environments that, you know, have low power and all of these constraints. So how do you solve those problems in an edge native way, but using the same kind of concepts that make sense um, from, you know, that journey for IT and, and cloud? We, um, <clears throat> interesting, I, I, I'm thinking of you as the uh, stealth turnaround CEO now. <laughs> the Phoenix, actually, that's a really good one to, uh, to potentially subtitle this one as, which is great. Um, and, I, and, you know, we've talked about the, um, in the past that, uh, 
uh, industrial OT in some sense we think is a um, is a way to describe the virtualization of OT much as the virtualization of IT has happened over the last couple of decades and and of course going all the way down to control levels so we've uh, so it's interesting to see how you've applied that from the enterprise IT side you know to the industrial side now the industrial side of course is very much about you know uh, deterministic life safety you know high, high resolution if you will control many times and so you'll know we're active investors in companies like yourself, Edge Impulse, Mutable, all of which are providing edge, if you will, uh, capabilities for various uh, fashions. How would you, how do you think, uh, um, when you think about edge computing relative to industrial IT, how do you think it differs from uh, versus, let's say, enterprise IT as an example, right? How do you design differently? How do you, how do you take the market differently for the industrial? You know, I, I love that question because it's one of my kind of key go-to phrases that I like to talk about, especially when I'm talking to investors or, you know, senior business execs. And that is that, you know, I think one of the reasons why this problem hasn't been solved, right? Because, you know, I mean, GE Predict spent billions of dollars, right? And I have a, um, a very good friend that was a senior VP of product there. And if GE Predicts can solve it, like what makes Nubix think that we, you know, with our little band of merry men are going to go solve this? And I think one of the reasons why we've been successful in getting the traction we have and getting the attention we have is that we looked at what was already true about the edge, right? And we kind of accepted the reality of the edge, right? Like, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, just, you know, get a green grass device and slap it on there, get a GPU, right? But you think about an oil and gas rig that has 30,000 data collection points. And guess what? A lot of those, about two thirds of those are already a sensor connected to a microcontroller. There's compute there, right? It's not that there isn't compute. There are a trillion microcontrollers out in the world today and I just got off the phone with ARM, they shipped another 4.4 billion microcontrollers last quarter, right? Like it's only accelerating, right? So there's microcontrollers out there, but the the answer for a lot of people is, well, we'll slap a GPU on it. You can't put 30,000 GPUs on an oil and gas rig, right? That doesn't, that, that's not even tenable from the perspective of the electricity consumption. So we really accepted the physics of the edge, right? Small devices, MCUs, right? We're talking 256K of RAM tiny, tiny devices. Maybe they have connectivity to the cloud. Maybe they don't. A lot of them don't, right? So they're disconnected environments. Maybe they don't even have anything but satellite that goes over once or twice a day, right? They are maybe on solar or battery, right? So these devices come on, read a couple things, turn on a light and then turn back off, right? Um, so there just were a lot of things about the edge that are so different than enterprise where I expect to have always connected, unlimited compute, anything I want is kind of at my fingertips, right? This kind of like lavish existence in the cloud of like overconsumption, overcompute, anything I want. It's kind of gluttonous, but way out at the edge, it's like sub-Saharan Africa, right? Where you're like, you know, eking out whatever you can on these little tiny devices. And so Nubix really accepted the edge right, based on what was already there so that we could address all of that brownfield opportunity. It's gonna take time, right? But we really focused on how do we 
leverage the compute and the connectivity and the power and everything that already exists out there to to be able to address those and then as you know greenfield stuff comes online and there's more opportunity there that's also addressable and it's kind of this you know bringing it all up together and bringing it all online into one platform instead of you know ignoring the trillion microcontrollers that are already out there um, and that's where we come up with this edge native idea, right? You've got cloud native technology that totally makes sense in an unlimited compute, unlimited power world. But out at the edge where you're in edge native territory, you really need technology that was purpose built for what exists at the edge. So let, let's let's drill down a little bit and and go back, if you will, on the on the use case example. Let, let's take the oil rig example that you, you have. How would somebody actually utilize you in that? Where is the where you see the largest impact of what Nubix is able to bring into a um, you know into an example like that? Well, so let, let's talk about heat sensors, right? So let's say, you know, if an oil and gas rig, let's say out of those 30,000 data collection points, let's say a couple hundred of those devices are heat sensors, right? And they're they're managing all kinds of different pieces of equipment. Um, and maybe some collection of those it needs to have one particular um, algorithm applied to the data signal, right? So I've got a sensor, I've got maybe a microcontroller, most likely two thirds of the time, there's gonna be a microcontroller attached to that. Right now, that microcontroller is kind of like old phones, right? Before smartphones came along where, you know, I can turn a light on or off, maybe I can shut something down or maybe I can turn on a fan, but it's pretty limited in my ability to address the situation, make sense of the data that's coming off of that sensor in a meaningful way, right? I, I may turn the light on and say, hey, I've got an alert, something's overheating, but I as the operator am now gonna have to go on a journey to figure out why is this light on? What is overheating? Why is it overheating, right? Um, if instead using Nubix, I once I've installed Nubix as my container on those heat sensors, now I can apply, I can deploy analytics that are very specific right to understand this data signal maybe even correlate it with you know not just the heat sensor now i'm going to correlate the heat sensor signal with a vibration sensor signal or maybe um, a humidity right or a um, you know a uh, some kind of friction right and then i can start to make sense of what's happening and, you know, and step one is maybe not to take action. Maybe step one is to inform the actual operators of, hey, yes, this the heat sensor has an issue, but I can actually tell you what the issue is now, right? And then as people get comfortable, right, because you got to kind of walk before you can run, as people get comfortable, the goal is to get to the point where now I trust that interpretation of the data and understanding what's actually happening. Now I can actually take action, right, and let the machines start to be autonomous. Um, and that that's all really hard to do because across those heat sensors, they're going to be all kinds of different OEMs, different communications protocols, different chipsets. Right now, right now, what that looks like is every time I want to update one of those sensors, I'm doing everything in C and C++. It's slow. I've got to design an application for each individual 
you know, incantation of that set of, you know, parameters, right? What's the RTOS? What's the chip? What's the board? What's the communications protocol? What's my I2C bus setting, right? So those are all the things that make that really hard. And so what you see is those firmware devices just don't get updated, right? Schneider updates them once every six months and ABB didn't touch them in nine months, right? Because it's just too hard. And then we haven't even talked about the potential of bricking those devices, right? Um, and that's that's going to become more and more front and center as you see things like the Colonial Pipeline, cyber attack. Now that was on the financials, right? But the hackers are seeing that these edge infrastructures are great targets because this firmware, these MCUs are just very vulnerable, right? Based on kind of current technology stacks. And that has to get addressed, right? Across water treatment facilities and street lights and, you know, nuclear facilities and things. That's the next kind of infrastructure issue that is pending for our country and for the world. And it starts at these MCUs where the sensors are. Mm, true, truly industrial edge in that regard. We have a um, uh, investment thesis called Brown is the New Green, i.e. Uh, <laughs> Brownfield is where all the money's at. Uh, yep. you, show, show me a greenfield in the industrial IT for the most part, right? They're very yeah. rare. And and yep. even then, because it's probably the same corporate owner, they're going to replicate what they already have volume purchasing agreements and all the other plants with, right? So it's uh, it's it's a way of per perpetrating, if you will, or, or perpetualizing, you know, the, just legacy, right? And uh, yep. so it's uh, it, it's an interesting model, and I, I see your value proposition very clearly in uh, in terms of how you guys uh, help, if you will, both homogenize and then harmonize uh, all of that together. So. You know, I, I like this people topic. So let me go back for a moment. I, I think I was joking with you before the uh, the podcast that you know, if uh, fortune tellers were accurate, they should be by definition the richest people in the world, right? Because they can <laughs> fortune tell everything. And in some sense, exec search professionals, recruiting professionals, should be the best, if you will, at uh, identifying and and recruiting and retaining really key talent. So I'm curious, as a CEO, and clearly the the, the term the phoenix goes a long ways here, but um, but you know, what what has been your experience in that regard, right? Do you feel like because of your your background, you've been a better you know people leader and recruiter and retainer of talent? Well, I mean, I think you'd have to talk to the people who report to me as to whether I'm a good people <laughs> leader. I mean, I I try really hard, right? I'm very very focused on you know culture and authenticity, and you know, and the biggest one is you know mean what you say, do what you say and mean what you say, right? Like, you know, don't say one thing and do something else. Like it, it makes everybody mad, right? And it never goes well. So, um, but you know, a couple of lessons I learned along the way, like one of the companies I was at was backed by Koshla and Vinod's, you know, his admonition to the CEO was no matter what, you spend 25% of your time as a CEO on people, right? Whether that's recruiting, managing, mentoring, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, and that that really stuck with me, right? That even at the CEO level, that we, back then, right, and this would have been 15 years ago, that it was that important, right, from his perspective. And then I think the other thing that really stuck with me, and I saw over and over and over again done wrong, and I you see it in books, is that number one regret most CEOs have is not dealing with a people issue when it's time to get somebody out of the organization. And I saw that firsthand. I mean, I saw a company completely implode at, you know, 65 
five people because of one bad people choice that just did not get addressed. And so that's something that, and my team, I think, would say that the thing that they see about me is that as much as I love people and as important as people are, I'm also absolutely fearless in the face of the hard choices. You have to be willing to make the hard choices, which sometimes sucks, right, in the moment. Um, but a great hire is absolutely as important as knowing when it's time to get somebody out of the organization. So it's really that balance, right? And it takes constant attention, right, um, to the signals, right, you know, across my people of what's working, what's not working, um, you know, and and that's the only way you keep good talent, right? So we've hired two amazing engineers you know, and and I and I love the fact that we're so efficient, right? Like Mike interviewed like two people, put one in front of me. We hired him; he's been phenomenal. For the other position, I think he interviewed five people, put two in front of me. We hired one, and he's been phenomenal, right? Like the amount of overhead to find awesome people, but then actually get them to stick and be productive, like is so low here. And, you know, and I have a great network to pull from because I have a great reputation of having made the right choices, right? Like, you know, early on in my career as a recruiter, I realized even if I had a fee attached to making a hire, if it was the wrong hire, I, I would talk people out of it, right? On either side, right? The candidate or the company, I'd say, nope, this is not the right person. Like, you know, yeah, I'm going to walk away from a $10,000 fee, but it's the right choice long-term. And I, I built my reputation on that, those kinds of choices. And so um, I think all of that comes through and makes the job of hiring and building an awesome team actually really easy. It's it's not as hard as it seems like it, it, it is for a lot of other people, but it's because I, I think I try and head off those challenges early on and uh, and then deal with them swiftly when they do rear their head. I think as you referred to it before the podcast, you called it your superpower, which is apropos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, speaking of your other other superpower, um, you know, one we're very proud to be uh, behind a, a a woman founder in, a, a, especially in this deep tech space. But you know, sadly, women still remain very underrepresented as founders of tech companies. You know, I guess to what do you owe, you know, or attribute your success, and and uh, probably more importantly, what would you advise to other uh, women following in your footsteps? You know, um, I'll go back to, you know, the, the fact that this has not been a direct path, right? There was no layup here. There was no clearly defined, you know, point A to point B. There was no straight line. But, um, but I think that um, I was tenacious, Right. Um, I, um, I I love what one of my mentors, who's a Stanford professor in the business school over there, says, and that is try another play. Right. So I think that and I think that that mentality of, you know, being passionate, knowing what you want, not giving up, trying another play, constantly tacking and looking for that opening and that opportunity is all what is required to be able to sit in the seat I'm in now. Right. Like, 
you know, one of my investors, his comment is that I, I wish that more of my CEOs had 10% of the gut instincts, but the willingness to trust and be passionate and focused and convicted, but still willing to constantly take in new information and adjust, right? Like, so not blindly, right? Um, committed. And that is really hard. It's hard to nail that and thread that needle because you have to believe in yourself but have enough humility to not have what I like to call happy years, right? Where I've already made up my mind, this is the path. And no matter how many signals come in telling you that's not going to work, you just continue blindly forward. It's hard to nail that right. And, um, and I think for women, it is an amazing set of skills if you're willing to stick with it and not get discouraged and continue to believe in yourself. Even when they, they say that being the CEO is the loneliest job, I like to say being the female CEO, especially in tech, is definitely the <laughs> loneliest job. And um, But you've You've got to be able to stand in that and be comfortable with that and continue on. And eventually, you know, it'll work out um, if you don't give up. Right. You always find your keys in the last place you look because, well, hopefully you stop looking. But uh, once you found them, but like, you, you know, you can't you can't give up. Right. You just have to keep finding a way, trying another play. Well, well said. And I guess today we call it just pivoting, right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Try gosh. another point. Yeah, pivot. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like VCs think that's a bad word. So I try not to use that word. It seems to make everybody scared. So. <laughs> <laughs> Pivot. All right, there, 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 there you go, Phoenix. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Finally, I always like to close out these conversations with just understanding how you find your personal inspiration as well, especially being the loneliest person in the Bay Area, I guess, at this point. So. <laughs> Um, I am a voracious audible reader. Like, and my playlist is everything from, you know, organizational development and people management to my my undergrad actually, funny enough, is in psych, right? So I um I love understanding humans and brains and how they work and technology and you know, organizational structure and go-to-market forces. So I listen to a million books on Audible any chance I get when I'm doing anything that doesn't require uh, that kind of passive listening. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, I'd say probably my number one um, place that I look for help kind of sorting through and making choices and understanding how to approach things. And then I also, I mean, you know, one, one of the people at Momenta is, um, has become a really great kind of, um, you know, peer and um, confidant. Um, so finding people that you trust that have the same values um, has been really helpful for me to, you know, just to, to have some kind of, um, you know, uh, tribe, right. Um, I'd say is, is the other half of my kind of inspiration, right. Find smart people who, you know, look at the world in a really smart way and, you know, be willing to take feedback and be wrong and listen and do a lot more listening than talking. Um, and 
I, I just try and really pay attention. All right. It, it's funny because before Nubix, which is now all sensor based, I, I used to make the joke that, you know, my antenna goes all the way up. And I, I definitely feel that way now. Like I've got a lot of sensors and I just am always kind of looking for the signal, right, that helps me navigate the next step in the journey. <laughs> well said. I really like that. That's, uh, although I've got images, the old, what was it? Uh, my favorite Martian. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. The antennas exactly popping right. up. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the little yeah. like statics, electricity signal going between the two. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now we've just dated both of ourselves. So. <laughs> right. <That's okay. laughs> yeah, exactly. This was pre Netflix for all of the younger generation. Right. So, uh, well, Rachel, look, thank you for spending this time with us today. Thank you. It's been awesome. It's, I really enjoyed it. We should have done it sooner, Ken. We, we, we absolutely should have. And, uh, and you look, you, you put so many notable quotables in the, in the first couple uh, uh, questions there that I think there's plenty of room and opportunity to deep dive on some of those in a, in a future talk. So I, uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. So this has been Rachel Taylor, CEO of Nubix. And if I don't, if I can get away with it, AKA the Phoenix, because I think it's absolutely a good description for you. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for our next Momenta Digital Thread podcast. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. <laughs>